Welcome to the Top Order Podcast. A couple of topics today. No surprises, we are going to talk about the T20 World Cup final. You'll tell from my grin, I'm a pretty happy man. We'll also talk about exit interviews for New Zealand and India. Look ahead to the ODI series and 2020 series uh, coming up. Do New Zealand need to refresh and rethink their 2020 side? And will the 2023 one-day squad look much different for New Zealand? Um, Good luck predicting India's team, by the way. All coming up on the Top Order Podcast. Stay tuned. Baldy, you're going to open the show today, I think, aren't you? As the uh, neutral in the room, or one of the neutrals in the room. Your home country bowing out of the tournament pretty early and sort of getting on with other bits of knitting across Australia. Yeah, thanks for reminding me, Adam. And uh, look, firstly, congratulations to your team. And we must we must inform our listeners that we leave no stone unturned here at the Top Order Podcast in terms of bringing you the genuine cricket experience. So at great personal expense, we've sent an intrepid reporter across to Melbourne for the final, uh, which was you, Adam. Let's open the show. Firstly, congratulations to England, a spectacular performance to win another piece of uh, white ball silverware. But just talk us through from sort of the get-go, landing in Melbourne, arriving to the ground, uh, walking the, the the outside of the MCG and then through to the game itself. Can you can you describe your experience and paint a picture for us of what it was like at the final at the MCG? Yeah, so look, I guess the first thing I'll say is flicked a text round to, to you boys before the semi-finals and said, who fancies a trip to Melbourne for the World Cup final? At that stage, none of those finals places had been decided. I knew that if New Zealand made it to the final on Wednesday, ticket prices for flights would get if not astronomically expensive, almost impossible to come by because uh, we've still got a little bit of a supply chain problem when it comes to flights out of New Zealand at the moment. So, look, I took the gamble, I think, on Tuesday, uh, just booked some flights, booked a hotel and, and obviously booked a match ticket um, and treated myself to yeah a pretty decent seat. Um, so, yeah, we're sitting about um, five seats away from Ramiz Raja, actually. So, I think a lot sure. of the Pakistan... Um, dignitaries and, and whatnot were you know, not too far away at kind of mid-off in the second tier um, of the Olympic stand. But yeah, look, I guess I wanted to really soak the atmosphere up and got to the MCG on the train from Melbourne Central. Um, I sort of tried and tested sort of uh, trip really. So last time I was at the MCG was for England winning the Melbourne Test match in 98-99. And on that day, I found a little Greek place, had a sublaki and a cold beer and then went and watched the Uh, four days of the test match with England won. So I repeated that on match day. So I went out into the Greek quarter in Melbourne, uh, made sure I had the same meal, same beer, (laughs) making sure that preparation was nice and consistent Um, and got to the ground, look, a couple couple of hours before um, the the game. And look, I I don't know whether it was the fact that, you know, a lot of the England fans were still in the various Melbourne bars and and restaurants right up until uh, the kickoff of the game. But I did a lap of the MCG at probably about half past five, the final kicking off at seven o'clock. And dead set, I reckon I would have only seen uh, 20 or 30 England shirts in a lap of the MCG. There was just a sea of green. There were flags, vuvuzelas, drums, um, look, all, all kinds of uh, noise going on and just a, an absolutely tremendous atmosphere, very joyous atmosphere. And I think genuine excitement from the fans that were were there, filtered into the ground. Um, yeah, had a beer with it with an old mate um, overlooking the pitch as the toss was going on, which was really, really good. Um, and then, yeah, made, made my way to the, the seats for, um, looks bizarre, really, some Australian rock. Um, 
was the kind of kickoff, which seemed a little bit irrelevant, really, with Australia not being in the tournament. So I think it would probably have been a much better atmosphere singing those songs with uh, green and gold in the final, but, you know, not to be for, for Australia. Um, genuinely as well, I think um, we talked about this or um, it's been talked about in that sort of England test match um, not too long ago, the, the Queen's death, uh, the first singing of God Save the King at that test match um, that got delayed against South Africa. Honestly, hairs stood up on the back of my neck, um, being in a crowd and, and hearing that for the first time. And then, look, what a game. Um, so, you know, I'm sure we'll go into the game, but um, 80,000 people in the MCG, a really, really friendly and joyous atmosphere, plenty of banter. Um, look, honestly, we'll go down as one of the greatest sporting uh, occasions in my life. I think a Twickenham All Blacks test match. And actually the final day of a Lord's Test match where England beat Australia in the Ashes in 09, probably the two things that I'd, I'd say come anywhere near close to the experience at the MCG on, on Sunday night. And finally, just a word on the weather. You know, it was almost like the reverse of that film, The Perfect Storm. Somehow the MCG managed to find <laughs> itself outside of the eye of a wall of a wall of rain. And um, look, again, um, the weather gods smiled on me. I... I kind of caught the train back into central Melbourne, walked about a kilometre from the train station to my hotel. Just as I got in the door of the hotel, the heavens opened in a biblical rain shower, which would have ended any cricket match at any point in the world. But by then it was yeah too uh, too late and to, to have affected what was a, a fantastic final. So yeah, there you go. But board, is that enough colour for you? Oh, that was an incredible picture. That's sort of, you know, Graham Bass, uh, Ken Peace. Uh, I don't know if he write, he's a writer. We'll, we'll edit that out, Raj, shall we? Lack of <laughs> no, my, no, lack I don't of think we knowledge. will. A Monet. Don't, don't forget a George Clooney and, and Mark Wahlberg. Perfect song. That's true. They, they, were, they were fantastic actors in that film. Uh, shall we move on to the game itself? Let's talk about the game. Uh, lots of turning points, lots of moments that were that were huge. What do we want to unpack first here in the room before we throw back to Adam for his uh, for his view? Can we talk spin? Because I, I um, Surely not. I think, I mean, yeah, obviously, obviously looking at me, I'm going to talk about spin and and um, you know looking back at you seeing that the five balls spin. is that that is that that five balls from Iftikhar is it? Oh no! Mm. Well, we might get to that a little bit later, but I think we let's go right back to England bowling because Adil Rashid's spell. I know Sam Curran won the man in the match, and um, I think rightly so. Probably took three wickets. You know, you can maybe debate the quality of the, the deliveries that got those wickets, but the, I think the 12 runs for him was probably the even the more impressive thing in a in a T20 game to go for four overs and and t- and only concede 12 runs. But Adil Rashid's spell, I think, and and almost uh, panning it out to the whole World Cup. I love the fact that in this World Cup that spinners were rewarded for being brave and kind of trying to take wickets, bowling slow. And the way he adapted to, I mean, we talked about it with Mitchell Santner in, in the Ireland game when we talked about New Zealand uh, leading into that semi-final. Adil Rashid, yeah, the way he bowled in that semi-final, I think that kind of changed the match from when I was watching that game. Raj and I watched it together at, at my on my couch. And, yeah, I mean, we were sitting there when Baba Azam... Adil Rashid bowled that ball to Barbara Azam. We were like, "What just? What's just happened there?" Yeah, look, I, I think that his spell. For, we did debate this. I, I actually wanted Adil Rashid to have the, the man of the match because I think his spell was that good. Uh, he actually, I felt, turned 
turned turned the match <laughs> uh, in England's favour and really turned those screws on that England, uh, sorry, on that Pakistani top order during the, the middle stages of that game. Uh, the wicket of Babar Azam, massive in any context, even bigger on than this, uh, you know, World Cup final sort of stage. And then also really, um, and um, I think it was uh, Nazim as well at that time, really put the... Um, Put the blowtorch on Mohammed uh, Harris as well, mm. and made it hard for him to score, and eventually got him out. I thought that his spell was was up there with uh, one, one of the great ones. Yeah, and Binksy, I mean, how do, how are you feeling? I guess going through the game, you you know, I feel like you're always a little bit nervous, and can always at least project um, when you're sending messages back and forth to us that you think the other team's going about about to have a huge over or something like this. But it sort of did feel like every time Pakistan started to put a partnership together, England would take a wicket or just break that partnership. Even, I think, Shan Masood and Shadab Khan had sort of built it up to a point where I think they were about 120 for four or whatever with two or three overs to go. Looked like they might get it up to 150, 160, kind of a competitive total. Suddenly England goes bang, bang again. I mean, how were you feeling going through the course of the game sitting there in the uh, around the Pakistan players? Yeah, look, I, I found it quite difficult. I unfortunately found myself next to um, one of those people that you don't want to be next to at a cricket <laughs> game. Um, um, an English guy, actually. So, you know, full, um, yeah, full disclosure, he's, he was a countryman. And um, as I arrived, he said, oh, you're not alone, because he, he saw my England hat um, in this sea of sort of Pakistan fans, and then proceeded to essentially tell um, yeah, his four companions who weren't evidently cricket fans, everything he knew about cricket. And look, I don't, I, I don't think he got anything right throughout the course of the whole game. So <laughs> let's hope he's not listening way, to the pod. No, well, I gave, I gave him our business card, and yeah, so yeah, if if, he, if he's tuning in, Mike, um, yeah, I, I don't like you anyway. Um, uh, um, anyway, look, he's not really called Mike. I, I just looked at the first thing on my on my desk here, and it was my microphone. So there you go. Okay. Um, but. But, but look, um, I, I think for me that you've already talked about one of the key turning points. I was actually pretty calm. The power play was definitely England's power play, bowling power play. Um, yeah, there was a little bit of a leakage of, um, of runs from Chris Wokes. Um, but then I think, you know, the, the first, you know, the, the first time I thought things were starting to go a little bit wrong was as Pakistan kind of got to that sort of 10 over market you know, high 70s, I think they were. It was that wicket of Babar Azam, mm. um, you know, 11th over, I think, from Adil Rashid's first ball, which, he, as you said, he tossed up. He was brave um, and, and kind of, you know, deserved that um, deserved that reward. And then I think that we, we bowled pretty well um, until, you know, Pakistan got themselves in a, in a position um, with, you know, five overs to go to maybe get to somewhere around that 160, 170 marker, which would have been, yeah, it would have been pretty competitive. But then we just kept taking wickets, you know, Sham Masood, uh, Shadab and, and, and Mohammed Nawaz um, all falling in pretty quick succession um, with, you know, obviously Curran coming back into the attack at that point and bowling fantastically. So, look, as pessimistic as I wanted to be, um, at 137 for eight, you'd have taken that every day of the week in a World Cup final. And um, with the caveat that you knew, I think, uh, I'm, and, and look, I'd like to ask this of you guys. I did flick you a text at the time to say, what did you think of the, you know, what did you think of the pitch? Because to me, it looked relatively, yeah, relatively uh, difficult to bat on all the way through. There was, uh, you know, plenty of movement for the seamers and and a little bit of turn as well. So whilst 137 for eight was nowhere near where Pakistan needed to be, um, it was going to be a challenge if, you know, they had 
a, a reasonable start with the with the ball. So yeah, I, I guess watching it from afar is that a fair reflection? You know, watching it on TV and having the likes of Ian Smith and and Nasser Hassan giving you a bit of insight as well. Yeah, I, I didn't think there was too much wrong with the actual wicket. Uh, it, it did take spin. It did fizz through nicely off the pace bowlers as well. I thought it was an all right pitch to bat on. Uh, that first innings was very eerily similar to all the other, you know, finals games that when the, the, the team batting first came out probably lacked a little bit of intent, especially early. Mm. Uh, but look, I think England, we, we can't take it away from England. They bowled really, really well. Even when, um, as you said, Pakistan got themselves in a situation, they were able to pull that back. Chris Jordan, uh, I was I was talking to the, <laughs> to the guys on the couch going, this is where Chris Jordan's going to let them back in the game. But he, he, he bowled beautifully to close it out. Uh, he did a great job. We were, there was one time, and I'll ask you this, Binksy, how did you feel about you know going back to going back to the well with Ben Stokes rather than a Livingston or something because Spin was or, or a Mon Ali even um, because they uh, Spin seemed to be doing a lot of damage restricting people. Uh, what did you make of the makeup of that that uh, bowling in the first innings? Look, I think they had a really solid plan, to be perfectly honest. But I think the other thing that England have done really, really well is adapted throughout the course of the tournament. They haven't just had that one you know, gung-ho batting approach. You know, they have dug in where they've needed to. And then from a bowling perspective, look, just the way they've understood the dimensions of the grounds that they're playing on, assessed the wickets and the pace of the wickets really, really quickly, known whether to bowl, spin, um, you know, really, really early. And, and I mean, like first or second over, which they tried a couple of times throughout the tournament with Moen Ali and I think Livingston as well, um, bowling up the top as well to kind of burgling over. I, I don't think Josh Butler got anything wrong from a, um, a captaincy perspective on on that day. Um, if someone can tell me that you know he should have restricted them to 120, then you know fair play to you. I, I don't think there was anything that he could have massively done differently. Uh, to pick up on the Adil Rashid piece, you know I think um, he was man of the match in that game against Sri Lanka, four for 16, I think, off his uh, or sorry, um, four overs for 16 in that uh, game against Sri Lanka, and you know similar spell here, but I. I I just don't think you can look past a guy, even when he gets t- wickets with the tail, to not go for a boundary in a World Cup final in a T20. Mm. That's a pretty special bowling performance from uh, from Sam Curran. So, look, I think they played it um, played it absolutely perfectly. When Stokes started with that no ball, I was a little bit annoyed, <laughs> um, but that that's probably the only yeah the only criticism I can have of that England bowling performance. To be perfectly honest. Uh, and the fielding was superb as well. And I think picking up on, you know, all the stuff that you've said, and, and um, I, I mean, the point we made last time around the the options that England has, I mean, I think that's ultimately, you know, uh, when, I, when I look at these two sides and even, you know, all the sides in this tournament, I think England is rightfully the winner in that sense that when you look through their lineup, they just have so many different options to play a number of different ways with batting and bowling and um, you will get into sort of New Zealand's stuff a little bit later but I think that the the fact that we didn't don't have genuine bowlers in that top six that we can be trusted with four overs actually significantly limits what you can do and, and England having those options I still don't even well, I was sitting there on Saturday Sunday night thinking why why is Moeen Ali not bowling and he he sort of just doesn't have to for that team so yeah really really impressive stuff but I mean we've we've given England all this praise but I think Pakistan still had a pretty good chance to win that game at, at various times and England sort of started wobbling at points 
Obviously, Shaheen Shahafridi comes in and delivers in the first over. He's very, very good at that. Cleaned up Alex Hales, and you thought, okay, here we go. You know, he gets another one here, and it's all on. They saw off him, but then Harris Ralph comes in, picks up a couple of wickets, 45 for three, and it's, you know, anything kind of could happen then. And out walks Ben Stokes, who has not had a very good tournament with the bat, and England just find a way to kind of get going, and, and probably because of the balance of that lineup. But, yeah, I mean, Binksy again, probably. Stokes, he's the one that's been getting all the plaudits. How did it look from out uh, on in the in the ground? Because uh, I certainly have some thoughts about his innings sitting on the couch. But um, yeah, he's he's the hero once again. Yeah, look, it's that old cricketing cliche. It's not how it's how many. Um, so look, <laughs> I think at the end of the day, he looked he looked scratchy as you like at times. Um, that, you know, there was an over where I think he played and missed three or four times. Um, yeah, clothed a couple. But look, the, the kind of mental fortitude I think he showed was was fantastic. I think a shout out to Joss Butler as well. Um, I think, you know, the plan really was there to get ahead of the rate if they could um, and get it down to somewhere near, you know, a runner ball or thereabouts. And, and even when he really, really struggled, I think it was, um, yeah, over from... Was it Nassim Shah where he got that audacious scoop out um, after he, you know, yeah. played and missed it a couple that, that were just kind of length length deliveries that kind of took my breath away in the stadium to to have the the minerals to go for that kind of shot and then look it really was it really was a sort of almost a lone hand Phil uh, Salt came in yeah smashed a couple of boundaries but looked pretty scratchy Harry Brook was like a, a cat on a hot tin roof for the whole of his innings. Um, yeah, I think, you know, Stokes was trying to rein him in, but um, yeah, could, couldn't seem to do so. And then, yeah, look, Moen does what Moen does in those situations, came in and clubbed a couple of boundaries and, and took the pressure off. But for a, yeah, for a pretty decent period of that chase um, from when Joss Butler was out in the fifth over through to the end of the game, it was it was really Ben Stokes, like number eight wire, um, band-aids, sticky tape, Arrol Dyke. <laughs> holding that whole England innings together. It was, yeah, it was something to behold in the ground that the, the calmness that he had, even when he was, yeah, playing and missing, um, yeah, more, more than, uh, oh, yeah, I was going to be, I was going to be horrible to either Raj or Baldy then, but I'm not going to be, but yeah, playing and missing more than, uh, playing and missing <laughs> you, you, you more You managed than, to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you say, I didn't say who. You say that, um, you know, holding it together, like you said, but, you know, Leon Livingston wasn't out. Sam Curran didn't bat. Chris Wokes didn't bat. It's not like he was scraping the barrel towards the end there. I, I thought they timed that chase brilliantly uh, after they lost those key wickets. Pakistan came out with a real fire in the belly. Mm. Uh, you know, my favourite quote that I, I told Baldy yesterday don't was don't underestimate those that overestimate. Uh, themselves, and mm. I think that you know Pakistan believed that they could win that game, and they 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 you know put themselves in a position where that it could have been very very interesting had uh, Shaheen Shah Freddie been able to bowl his last oh, yeah. two overs, which was a, which was a bit of a, a disappointment. But yeah, Ben Stokes held it together. Moeen Ali, who's batting far too low for my liking and not contributing enough with either ball or bat, not not of his own uh, you know reasoning. He's just not getting not getting the opportunities that he should have. Uh, but the way he came out and just absolutely coughed it and got them all the way to, uh, to pretty much the brink uh, on the back of his 13 balls out there. Gee, that Nassim Shah spell, I mean, 
I, I feel like that's criminal that he bowled that spell and just didn't get a wicket. I mean, he must have played. They must have played and missed it. Him. I think he actually went for about twenty eight runs as well or something in in his four overs. But they must have come off about six shots because pretty much every other ball they played and missed to Butler to Stokes to yeah um, unbelievable spell. I mean, yeah, what what an effort and the what you know you guys were talking about the pitch before. Nassim Shah, it seemed like every time he bowled, I know he's not uh, on the speed radar as quick as Harris Ralph, but every single ball that he bowled just kissed off the pitch and was flying through. flying through. It just it kind of gave me terrors thinking that we're going to go to Pakistan and play this bowling attack in a in a uh, test series soon. Although, yeah, this Shaheen Shah Freddy injury seems like he's going to it's going to rule him out for for quite a while, which is a real shame. Just to to back up uh, your your thoughts here on Nassim Shah with some stats. Out of his 24 balls, he bowled 15 dot balls yeah, and still went for 30. Yeah. Uh, that was quite quite incredible and probably a little bit unlucky. He bowled very, very well and was unlucky not to get wickets. Very well very well bowled. And look, uh, that's, um, you know, we've, we've kind of talked a lot about the actual details of the game now. I've got a couple of bigger picture kind of questions for us. So I have seen, uh, you know, a lot of... There's, you know, always at the end of a World Cup or anything like this, there's all sorts of superlatives that get thrown out. And um, I think we've given enough praise to England and, and talked about them. Like I said, I think they, you know, fully deserved winning this tournament. They've uh, they've been one of the strongest sides the whole way through and, and on paper, I think, are the best side. I want to know, you know, where does this actually leave them? Are they, are they now the best all-format team in the world? Thoughts from the room? Yeah, I think I think you know we we did that. That was my thoughts on on the on the weekend after watching that game. They are the current world champions in both white ball formats, mm-hmm. and they're you know experiencing experienced a bit of a renaissance, experiencing a bit of a renaissance with their uh, test match uh, play at the moment. So, I, I think they are probably the best team all round in all formats at the moment. But isn't it exciting though that you could have that same conversation about Pakistan? Right, they've been playing excellent, excellent white ball cricket of late. They've got a really, really good test side. They played really well against Australia in in Pakistan, and and I'm excited to see them this summer. Um, India, you could have the same argument. Um, South Africa are a team on the rise. There is some real, real good test cricket coming up because all of those sides are, are excellent. And and we haven't even talked about we haven't talked about Australia. We haven't talked about you know um, New Zealand, you know the West Indies, whoever. But those three for me, they're, they're box office at the moment. Well, I don't think we're putting the West Indies in that conversation. No, but I, but, yeah. uh, but but look, I mean, I I think it's amazing that we're sort of having this conversation. We're considering where we were at a year ago. I mean, you know, we were sitting here in this room kind of making fun of Binksy, really. And now Binksy's, you know, I mean, he's sitting at home on his computer staring back at us, just grinning. I mean, yeah, Binksy, you must just be stoked with this turnaround. I see what you did there too. That was good. Yeah, um, I'll probably take a slightly different view. Um, I don't think we're the best all-format team by a long, long stretch. So I think Test Cricket, we've had, yeah, a mini renaissance um, a little bit of a bounce with a new coach and captain and a, a freedom in terms of the way that we've played our test cricket over, let's be honest, at one home summer. So, um, yeah, look, I'm not getting too carried away from a test match perspective. Where I will go is that from a white ball point of view, um, we've been awesome since 2016. Um, you, you know, you think about the fact we lost the T20 World Cup to look a freak incident with you know, Carlos Brathwaite hitting four sixes. Um, 
you know, we, we then kind of competed in every single white ball tournament that we've been at. And let's not forget that there's a couple of pretty decent players. Um, Johnny Bairstow sitting at home with a broken foot. Jofra Archer coming back from injury. Mm-hmm. Um, Reese Topley, who was probably a shoo-in for the start of this tournament, was injured early in the tournament. Um, we've had injuries to David Milan during the course of this tournament. He really didn't get going at any point. And I think they're going to keep the majority of this group together as a white ball side with the likes of Harry Brook, Liam Livingston, um, Phil Salt, um, as well as, you know, some other guys with, you know, the bowling stocks to continue to come in. So I think, you know, there doesn't seem to be a group that are going to all en masse retire here. You know, you probably think about, you know, the, the next to go is maybe, you know, Alex Hales, who's, you know, pretty, pretty, you know, pretty old in comparison to some of the squad. Um, but I, I still think he'll probably make it to the next T20 tournament. So, I, look, I think um, all formats, no, but there isn't anyone else at the races from a white ball perspective as far as I'm concerned at the moment. And I'm not very often that buoyant about English cricket, but when you look at their record in all conditions over the last five or six years with white ball cricket, um, I'm sorry, there's, there's no one that's anywhere near them in terms of the consistency of the quality of the white ball cricket that they play. Let's let's because uh, I, I I can't really disagree with you on that, but I, I have seen one superlative today that I thought was a bit ridiculous, and it was from the I think it was from a reputable source. I can't remember if it was Crick Info or, or Wisden or something like that. Called England the or or actually might have been one of the English newspapers, so maybe not quite as as reputable. But uh, I I'm pretty sure they called England the greatest white ball team of all time. Surely that's not true, right, guys? Oh, I think Baldy needs to stand up for himself a little bit here. But, I mean, obviously there is, you know, periods where there have been dominance by Australia. Um, you know. West Indies in the 80s. West Indies, yeah, there, there's, there's plenty there. I think, you know, that's maybe getting a bit carried away. But, look, at the end of the day, the silverware is in the in the trophy cabinet. It's hard to argue. Yeah, But there is, there is, you know, the arguable points there. Yep. yep. I think they're in the conversation, but I don't think it's clear cut. Uh, Baldy, come on, stand up for yourself. You won three World Cups no, in a row. Th- th- it's, I it's, don't remember it, any of that time ever thinking that anyone would not win those World Cups apart from Australia. 99, yeah, 2003, 2007. I think that's, that, still, that's still the top. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't disagree. I'm just saying England are in the conversation now, right? They're, they're, it's not England clear-cut first, second, third. But you can make the argument, well, right? It's because they're not done. That, that's also yeah, 100%, the other thing. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, we have this conversation again in three years and they've won another piece of silverware. Mm-hmm. Like... This time next year, if they win the ODI World Cup comprehensively, then we're really starting to talk about dynasty-type performances, right? Dynasty-type cricket sites. And like, like Adam said, there's only one or two players that are going to go away, and they've got more players coming in. So it's exciting times for England cricket, dare I say it. Yeah, and look, especially actually if you think about the going, you know, it's going to be in the in the subcontinent, but actually, like we've talked about all this way on this podcast, they're actually well-balanced for spin and, and players of spin and, and all sorts of that stuff. So... Yeah, look, very, yeah. Did, did anyone pick them beating Pakistan in the final? <laughs> I, I, someone did. I'm pretty sure someone did. Um, maybe at the the start of the tournament might have even said that England and Pakistan were, were going to make the final and England was going to win, I that's think. It, that's it, Can't yeah. remember who that was, but, who was, but we'll move what, on swiftly. What, what a man. Why don't we move on to a couple of the other teams and um, and go back, I guess, in time to the semifinals because India and obviously New Zealand has a, a strong place in the hearts of a few of us on here on the podcast, a big thing that sort of came out of both of those two semifinals was intent, right? Everyone was kind of saying that 
they were clear, you know, New Zealand and India kind of got scores that maybe their fans tricked themselves into thinking were good scores when they batted first or commentators tricked us into thinking that because I think at, at the halfway point of both of those games, you know, commentators were going, look, it's a tricky pitch, but, you know, teams have bowled well if they come out and bowl well. Did we actually, like, did we, being New Zealand and India, just kind of get those games wrong? It is a lack of intent, you know, should, I've seen people come out and say, everyone should be trying to aim for 180 and, you know, plus in all T20 games. I mean, obviously the final didn't play out that way either, but, you know, do you think there was an issue really with the intent, Raj? Uh, so, look, I'll take a look at the New Zealand game first. New Zealand, we mentioned it a, a number of times on this podcast, New Zealand is a team that does enough to win. Mm. You know, that, that it's not usual that they go out there and score 220 and bowl a team out for, you know, 120. Uh, we'll the, always have that good old-fashioned hiding, though. Sure, sure. Um, but look, I thought that they had perhaps done enough. It looked like a hard, harder pitch to bat on. Uh and in fact, it probably suited probably a subcontinent side more than one um, from from this side of the world. But I thought that we had done enough. I think that if we had taken a couple of wickets in that sort of early power play stage, we were right in the game. I think we did well to get to 150. We would have taken that from the position that we were in uh, much earlier. But at the end of the day, it comes down to intent. We had Conway and Williamson batting together for a long period of time, going at just over a runner ball. Yeah. Maybe if we'd had an injection of, a, you know, Jimmy Nisham or uh, Glenn Phillips, how we were talking about, maybe he sometimes bats at three if, if Finnellan goes out early. I just feel like we kind of consolidated for a bit too long mm. uh, and, and that was our downfall in the end. Yeah, look, I, I want to kind of, yeah, look, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, look, in the end of the day, the two teams that came out in those semifinals that batted second, both of them, I mean, it was, it was abundantly clear, I think, even more in the... Um, in the England game when Alex Hales and Joss Butler just went bang, bang, bang. And the game was over. Like the game was over after the power play. It, it sort of almost felt like that for New Zealand, but then somehow New Zealand kind of scrapped it, even with terrible fielding, terrible bowling at times, kind of scrapped it through to the, the final over. But I mean, in that England game, the way that Butler and Hales kind of went out there and, and did the business, I mean, must've sent Binksy, you know, must've been a massive grin on his face when he was thinking I'm going over now to, to watch this, this final, but uh, you know, I I, th- I do th- I do want to make the point that I think it's it's very easy for people to sit on the couch and go, look, every single T Twenty game you should be able to get one eighty plus. We've just seen it in this final, and and even in that final, I think I think it was Chris Wokes maybe after the game, a couple of the England players were talking about the occasion and actually about how how that did play a part, and it's always going to play a part. And if it was so easy to get one hundred and twenty, like one hundred and eighty. Every single T20 game would be like that. It's not like that in the IPL. It's not like that in you know in these internationals. We saw it last T20 World Cup. We've seen it now. Yeah, I, I just you know whether there's a there needs to be some you know little shift in what New Zealand does or um, in particular, you know perhaps I'd certainly be interested in, in discussing that a little bit more. But yeah, I don't whether you can kind of say that we. Those teams just completely misread things and got them wrong. I, I don't really agree. 
just, yeah. just uh, I, sorry, sorry, BCR, just just say this one thing about the Indian betting. I, I think that they actually rescued themselves quite spectacularly towards the end there. The innings that Hardik had to, to actually get, or Kohli and Hardik, to get them up to that 160, what was it, 160 odd they got, mm. uh, 168 for six, well, that actually put them in a fairly good position. It's mm. just England were far too good. When we, when we looked at the preview for India, we mentioned that their bowling, I felt, was a little bit, little bit weak coming into this tournament. Without no, Jasper. Without Jasper Brummer, yeah. without that real superstar for this kind of occasion. Mm. Um, and I think that, that that's just where it came down to. England superstars stood up uh, in both sides of that game. Uh, sorry, over to you, Bing C. Yeah, I just wanted to make one quick point. And I think it's the same for both India and New Zealand. I don't think it's a lack of intent and I don't think it's a lack of quality in terms of the players available. I think what it probably is, is that this game has evolved so quickly and it's actually more around the planning and, and the way that you approach the game. If we talk about that New Zealand-Pakistan game in isolation, um, when you've got um, you know an early wicket of Finn, Finn Allen going, do you really then send in Kane at that point? Or do you actually say, no, I'm going to go with Glenn Phillips or I'm going to go with uh, Jimmy Nisham or, or someone else who just kind of continue to inject that power into the power play? And a little bit the same with, you know, with India. Um, Kohli and, and, and Rahul are so pleasing on the eye, but I don't ever see them striking at 160, 170. You know, at best, they're going to be in the sort of 120s and 130s. So um, when they've got, you know, Rahul and Sharma, who probably is de- on the decline as a white ball batsman and on the incline as a test match batsman now, Rohit Sharma, I think, um, particularly as an opener, I, I think I wonder whether or not you do need to actually kind of change and be flexible in your approach rather than necessarily, you know, I know it's a subtle differentiation, but yeah, I don't think it's intent. I think it's that their game plan is to backload their innings with with power. Um, but we've seen that if you bowl well and bowl to really, really good plans, then um, you can stop a side getting away. So you're almost better getting ahead of the eight ball um, as quickly as you can so that, you, you know, that you've got uh, more options as you go through the course of constructing a T20 innings. That's my two cents. And uh, look, I I want to move to you touched on India a little bit there. I I want Baldy actually to to be the first to answer this because I know he doesn't like to to jump off the fence. But I want to throw it out there: Are India underachievers? Yes, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. You you can't you can't look at that side on paper, regardless of you know Jasper at home, Jadeja at home. You can't look at that side on paper and the depth that they've got in the IPL over the last five six years and say that um, a, a loss in a semi-final by 10 wickets is a good enough performance for that cricket side. Um, particularly when you have a look at they haven't... Have they won a major tournament since 2011? No. So they haven't won a major tournament in 11 years. For an Indian side that has that much depth, that much talent, and that much money on offer from an IPL contracts point of view and a player development point of view, absolutely they've underachieved. Absolutely. I think it's tournament wins or bust for India from, a, from an expectation point of view from their fans. And if you have a look at the type of cattle that they've got on offer, regardless of whether or not Jasper is out or Jadeja is out, they've still got some world-class players in that cricket side. Um, they've got maybe now, look, regardless of what you think of any of the individuals, there's enough of them there that they should be winning big tournaments at, at some point in the last 11 years and they just haven't done so. So yes, absolutely. Question for your boardy though, they don't let their players play anywhere else in the world. Is that a, a determining factor? They're only playing the IPL on small grounds? 
It, it is to a certain extent um, in terms of preparation. But if you're that good, if you're go- as good as those players are, they should be able to adjust and adapt to their game and still be successful. I 100% agree. Playing in Australia is a different kettle of fish. It's a different environment. But... Coley's played all around the world. You know, all those players, Rohit has been, has been successful all around the world. I grant you that they don't play domestic cricket all around the world, but they do play international cricket a lot, those guys. So absolutely a mitigating factor from a preparation standpoint, but th- those players should be classy enough and good enough that that is a part of their ad- adaptation process. But Raj, is, is it head in the sand stuff? Because I see now... Um you know, Rahul Dravid, I think, has come out and said, look, I support it. I support it. I don't want the guys going out and uh, and playing these other leagues. Yeah, look, I feel like uh, Rahul Dravid was a little bit ambushed with that question uh, and having to answer it. Uh, there is probably a little bit of a feeling that if they allow players to go away and, and play around the world, it will, you know, it will weaken their their domestic sides, their their first-class sides, uh, and even their, you know, their... their limited over stuff that's that's domestic uh, the perfect case in point there is the west indies uh you mm. know they've done that that's what's happened they've got a great base of uh, 2020 players but they struggle to put that on on, on the world stage hit in the sand I, I don't know i think they have a reason for doing what they do mm. uh it also keeps the ipl strong because it's the only competition that has pretty much every single um player aside from the, the pakistanis uh who you know their best players on offer uh, yeah, I don't think it's head in the sand stuff. I think there is other sort of reasons behind it. And can I can I also just say um, that I believe that India are an underperforming team. You, you look at them from a bilateral perspective. Sure, they go ahead and they win, win, win series, beat people all around the world. But when it comes to things like even the Asia Cup, they didn't perform in that either. And uh, in, in World Cups, we've seen that so so far. So I I think they are an underperforming side. You're right, Baldy. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's. It feels a bit harsh, and I um, to say that because you know you look at their actual record, and you know I, I mean New, you know people have this similar conversation around New Zealand, and in, in that sense the the last you know since the twenty fifteen World Cup, I guess we've gone to all these semis and finals, and and we've got the World Test Championship to show for it, but we don't have you know that that's all we have to show for it. I think India is in that same boat, but even more because one they don't have that World Test Championship to show for it. But also, yeah, the strength and depth that they have, it does feel like they they should have won something and, you know, they just haven't performed at these right times. It, it does sound harsh, but, I mean, if you think of it from a historical context, if Australia... and India's side is, is on paper a very, very good cricket side. If that Australian side of the late 90s, early 2000s had gone semi-final, semi-final, semi-final in 99, 2003, 2007 to go with their... Um, loss in the final in 96 and, and their dismal performance in 92, you would say that Australian side massively underperformed. You could even argue that the South African side of that era underperformed from a from a results point of view because they were an incredibly good cricket side but just didn't manage to win anything. So from a results point of view, massively they've underachieved. It's not that for lack of trying or lack of effort or lack of preparation, they just haven't achieved the results that they expect of themselves and their fans expect of them. That's underachievement by definition. So in saying that, does that mean that we're looking at a, a bit of a rebuilding phase for the New Zealand 2020 side? Well, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think it's really interesting because we, you know, we talk about all this stuff with New Zealand and, and I think rebuild, I, I think immediately as soon as that stuff came out and, and, you know, as New Zealand got knocked out of that tournament and and even through that tournament when there was all these conversations about Kane Williamson, who I actually think by the end of that tournament, was one of our better batters in that tournament. So I, th- I think that conversation kind of 
like I said many times, I think that conversation has to go away, whether it's, you know, how you use him is potentially a different question. But I, I think that people get so, people have watched so much American sports these days, and we're all guilty of it. You, you go into this mode of, oh yeah, okay, so our team's not the best in the competition, so let's rebuild. Let's like uh, let's go tank and get our draft picks and things. But actually, international sport kind of doesn't work that way. And you know, I I think that international sport, New Zealand's just shown it with the side that they're picking in this uh, one day series and T Twenty series against India. I think a lot of people, you know, straight after this World Cup, kind of assumed, okay, New Zealand's going to go in now and they're going to like half of our team are going to rest for this uh, for this six match six, six match series. We're going to see the likes of Chapman. We might see a couple of new players. We might see Cleaver. Might see all of these guys. They've said no, and we're not going to do that. They've actually said, like, we've actually said we're going to move on from Martin Guptill. Probably mm. doesn't look like he's necessarily going to be back. We've given a bit of a, you know a, a big confidence boost to Finn Allen by saying he's the the one for the future. We've said Trent Bolt. Okay, you know you haven't committed to New Zealand cricket. You're going to, um, we're going to leave you out of these bilateral series. I still think that he's going to be very much in contention for that that 2023 World Cup. But apart from that, they've picked their best side. You know, someone like Mark Chapman, who I thought would almost be a shoe in for the series because he didn't get any cricket. He's someone who who sees himself on the outer because they've just gone. We're going to pick the front line side. Yeah, look, I, I agree. Uh, there is there is an opportunity when you when you when you are planning your 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 team your international team to plan around big tournaments right and so if you've got a, a world cup cycle that's four years away you can plan for that and go okay who do we think are the best 12 people that we need or 15 people or 16 people or whatever for that tournament england did it famously in 2001 planning for the 2005 ashes they said right who are the test cricketers that we think are going to be successful in 05 and we'll build towards that built there's nothing wrong with building towards a world cup cycle We've, we've got another World Cup cycle next year and we'll have one the year after and the one the year after that. So New Zealand aren't throwing the baby out with the bathwater because they realise that they've got an ODI World Cup in 12 months. So, you know, there's there's that to plan for and I think they, they've started to go about it the right way. Backing the guys that you think are going to perform well for you, we've seen great things from Phil, Finn Allen um, so far in his career, particularly in that first game of the World Cup. So he's, he's the right person for the job, I think. I don't think they've done anything really wrong here. Binksy, can I just throw to you, because I know you've got to jump off the call in a minute, can I just throw to you to kind of ask, going back to 2015, you know, give us some perspective on how England went about that. Did they, you know, I can't even actually remember, did they throw out all their players or did they change, I mean, I know they kind of changed their approach, seemed like that was a big thing, but did they sort of retain the same core of players when they were looking to that next next crop of uh, tournaments? Um, yes and no. So they, they kept faith with Owen Morgan, who was captain in that 2015 World Cup, but they then jettisoned some players that had been around the side for a, a period of time. Alistair Cook, I think Gary Balance came in famously for that tournament. James Anderson, Stuart Broad were cast aside. Um, so I think that, you know, absolutely they did make some, you know, some fundamental changes. Uh, but I think what they did is define that the, the approach that they wanted with that group of players over a a pretty decent period of time and, and set up. And I know they've talked a hell of a lot about this and it's a bit of cliche bollocks, but you know, they, they gave people one game more than they probably deserved and kept doing that so that guys could go out and play really without that fear of failure. Cause they knew that they were always going to get another, you know, another chance. There's probably only really been a couple of people, Jason Roy being one that's had, you know, a lot of rope and, and, you know, finally got dropped just because he, you know, he couldn't get going, but he was given a long, long time 
um, to keep going. The, the question I have around New Zealand, I think, is I, I agree with Baldy. I think, you know, you've got the fundamentals there. But I, I think that the, the big strength that England have had is they've had strength in depth. You know, they've managed to have two or three guys that can come in and bowl quickly. They've had a couple of options, you know, from a spin perspective. For, for, for India, absolutely, that depth's there. But I just don't know whether you've got the 20 players that you probably need. I think we've played 30 players um, plus um, in T20 cricket over the last 18 months or so. Um, I, I, I don't think you would have that um, same strength in depth to be able to kind of, on the eve of a tournament, replace a Lockie Ferguson um, or a Glenn Phillips, for example, um, in the way that you know England have been able to, to call a, you know, an Alex Hales for a Johnny Bairstow. Um, or uh, you know Mark Wood for a Jofra Archer, for example, and maybe to, maybe to wrap things up, Raj, I, I guess so. I mean, my final two cents on on this really is that I think New Zealand will stick with the status quo through to this twenty twenty three World Cup, the ODI World Cup, like you just said, Baldy. That'll be their next focus. Gary Stead's contract actually, I believe, runs to that tournament, and then not not after it. You know whether he'll reapply, who knows. It wouldn't surprise me if at that time both sides kind of said, okay, cool, let's, you know, you've, you've had a, a really great run. You've taken us to this World Test Championship. You've had the different, you know, taken us to all these tournaments. We've got a new kind of crop of players coming. Let's sort of look to the future now. And that 2024 lineup, Raj, I, I want to just do a quick fire. Let's go through the lineup for this last game for New Zealand here. And, and well, actually, the lineup for the whole tournament, because I think they kept it the same apart from um, injuries the, the whole series. How many do we think will make it to that 2024 T20 World Cup? So, Finn Allen? Yes. And uh, Devin Conway? Yes. Kane Williamson? Yes. Interesting. Glenn Phillips? Yes. Daryl Mitchell? Unsure. I'm going to say no. No, okay. Jimmy Neesham? No. Interesting. Santner? Yes. Sodi? I'm going to say yes, because I think they have a certain role for him, but he needs to start performing. Okay. Lockie? Yes. So Southie? Yes. Bolt? I'm going to say no. Wow. But that, that even, you know, even we've just gone through this lineup, right? There's a lot of players that you think are still going to be there or, or still going to be there or thereabouts. difficult conversations, but, right? But the, the, this is the thing. We've got guys now. Michael Bracewell has pushed himself to the front of everybody's mind. Everyone's asking, why isn't he playing? Why mm. wasn't he there at the World Cup? We've got Adam Milne, who's come into this, this side that we're looking at now uh, for the current ODIs. We've got people who I feel like we're trying to, we're trying to build a side that is a little bit different to what we have been playing with over the last few years. We're going out with an all-out pace attack, very similar to, to sort of the Pakistan uh, lineup that we've got, and we just need some absolute explosive power with the bat. And how they formulate that top four around Conway and, and Williamson is going to be the key. For now, we know what his role is going to be, but we need to make sure that we're making the most effective use of Conway and Williamson. Yeah, and look, if, if Finn Allen becomes a bit more consistent, maybe this kind of question goes away. If Mark Chapman jumps in, puts himself in that conversation, Glenn Phillips. Yeah, look, but I, I just think it's interesting that there's just so much thought to always rebuilding and, you know, we've got to get this next crop of players in. And then you actually go through and you think, actually, these tournaments come around so quickly. Mm. 
that the next crop of player or the current crop of players, probably if they want to be, are still there and possibly still the best eleven, close to the best eleven we have. So yeah, it's it's I'm I'm sure there are people listening to this now that want to completely, you know, run through all of those numbers and or names that you said and you know get rid of all of them. But look, yeah, I, I, I would be hard pressed to do that. Well, boys, I think that does just about wrap up. Thanks for indulging me with my tales of Melbourne um, at the start of the show. I've got to say, as a an English cricket fan, it was it was fantastic, and you know, even made me positive about English cricket for a few hours. So, um, look, fantastic to be uh, to be world double world champions um, in the white ball formats. We will, of course, be back. The cricket doesn't stop. Um, rather bizarrely. A number of teams jumped straight onto planes. England playing in Adelaide this week. Um, we've talked a little bit about New Zealand's upcoming series as well. So we'll be back on the Top Order podcast with cricket from all around the world over the next few weeks. Um, but for now, it's good night and God bless from us all here in Auckland. Good night. See you soon.